You're listening to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, episode 71. Hello and welcome to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, where we discuss not only who or what might be driving your life, but also the great views and experiences along the way. Do you drive in the fast lane like my wife, or do you feel like you're stuck in first gear? You only get one life to live, and it can be either a total wreck or a beautiful cruise into the sunset. We are three friends that have collectively experienced almost anything that could possibly happen in this crazy world, and we'll be discussing our personal reflections and experiences so hopefully you can avoid running out of gas and truly enjoy the wind blowing in your hair. So hop on in with us for a little road trip called life, and let's discuss who's driving your car. Aye! World. Welcome back to Who's Driving Your Car, episode 71. <laughs> We're pretty excited. Uh, you might have noticed the new voice in a little bit of the intro here. We have Megan Boudreaux with us today, um, a fellow Louisiana native from Lafayette. Woo-hoo. We're excited about the opportunity. We give John a little credit here for this as well. A lot of the credit for getting her here today, the idea, and I think he'll speak a little bit about that. Um, little background, um, she's written a book, and she has founded a non-profit organization called... Respire. Respire. <laughs> Respire. I've been reading that wrong for weeks. Also known as Respire. It's okay. <laughs> um, she has an amazing story about uh, hearing God's voice, listening to the call, and many, many, many doors and stories that um, have opened since then and continue to open that we'll get into today. So... I think it's going to be a great ride full of um, some motivation and inspiration, and we welcome you aboard here, Megan. Awesome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, I want to give a shout out and give a thanks to my sister-in-law, Emily Carraway, who uh, went on a mission trip and actually met Megan several years back uh, in Haiti. So we appreciate uh, the input for people who continue to give us suggestions for guests. We're really excited about this one. Also, continue to share and rate the podcast uh, whenever you get a chance. Absolutely. And Megan, before we hop in, we're going we're gonna to delve into the story, delve into the weeds on this a little bit. Can you maybe give us a few seconds background about yourself, what you got going on? Not necessarily the story itself, but a little background on you for the listeners. Sure, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Lafayette, and I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. And uh, shortly after that, I went to Baton Rouge for work. And I was working with Our Lady of the Lake Hospital, and they uh, sent me to Haiti. And so that's kind of how the whole story worked, um, began, and that's now, now I'm in Haiti. So, <laughs> All right, great. Yeah, we are, we are looking forward to the story. Uh, like I said, many, many neat stories to come here. Before we hop in, a little bit of kind of a warm-up happenings. We play a little Would You Rather game. And and John's got it this week, so there's kind of no telling where we're going to go or what we're going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. So, Johnny, what you got for us, buddy? Well, this is uh, another uh, suggestion uh, from Ava Grace. This is from my little niece. She's been hearing some of her uh, Would You Rathers from her brother, so she wants to be on there. Uh, Not just a shout-out. She wants us to use her Would You Rather. So this is is for her. You know, ready? Nervous. Okay, go. I know. You never know what you're going to get when you listen to the kids. Would you rather have to go to school every day for the rest of your life until you die or have to go to work every day for the rest of your life until you die? Oh, well, you know, that's an easy one for me because I love my job. Oof. So I would definitely, although I like school too, but no, I would pick work because I like what I do. Yeah. And I mean, a big part of your current job is education too. So that's kind of both. something to consider. (laughs) Oh, I was a little scared. That wasn't as scary as I thought. <laughs> yeah, you got to jump right in. And I'm questioning, like, what school are we repeating, like, for the rest of our life? Like, first grade or something? Are we, yeah, are we getting to chill, like, back in the grade school? Or we're working our way up, and now we're into, like, I'm taking graduate classes? I think the rest you can take <laughs> graduate classes if you want. Mm. I thought the same thing. I mean, there were some things that I would not want to go through again, but, like, graduate school, professional school, that was a blast. I had a great time. Yeah, some of the stuff a lot, be a lot of close-knit of fun. friends during that time frame, so that was a really fun time. Going back to uh, college and taking government classes and that stuff, whew, I don't want to do that again. What do you mean, dude? You don't want to consider going back to the homeschool life the rest of the way? 
well, that was pretty fun too. I mean, that's another <laughs> one. You know, we had a lot of free time uh, after the couple hours of two, three hours of schooling, get to go play and uh, ride four wheelers and shoot guns and do all that kind of stuff. That was great. So it'd be a tough one. Short what you going to do? Me, I, I would take the schooling. I'd rather keep like educating myself, learning. I like my job. We've discussed it. It's, it's up there. Uh, I don't know. Doing that the rest of my life though. Till you die. Till I die. Which could be tomorrow. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> True. Um, I'm going to go with school, correct? Yeah, it all depends on the experience of school. So it's like, you go to, is it in class every day or is it the experience of college, right? So Mr. You, Magnese, I mean, uh, well, I well, you know, those were the glory days. <laughs> but, but, oh man, um, do like my job, but every single day, of course, we do different work, right? We have different things we do. So some things I don't consider work because they're so much fun, but they are kind of work. Hmm. Good one. Good one. <laughs> this is intense. You Good one. Stumped CC. So is it one job we have to do every day, or is it like our what we consider our work, our That's a good mission? Question, our, because I like my other jobs too. I'll yeah. So if I'm like it. dabbling in all the things I do that I call work, well then I would probably choose that. Um, cause school is fun, but God, I do not want to repeat med school. <laughs> it was, See, I'm kind of feeling like we're, if we're Man. still going in school, you're like taking German for fun right now, dude. Yeah. No, if it's just for, Hey, every day I learn something different. I love to learn. And I think it'd be a cool experience. And it just depends on all the little caveats. We always try to add to these, these questions. So I'm going to go. Work in my current... St- okay. I don't know. Shoot. Okay. I don't know. Like your life depends on it. <laughs> it's actually... the They're both not good. <laughs> so neither. <laughs> I mean, they're good in their own sense, hey, but not with school, forever. You get the like holidays off too, I guess. Oh, that's true. With summer vacation? I'll take summer vacation, but that negates doing it every day. Well, it's oh. every day. Every day. That's true. Oh, man. So you'd have to work every single day too. I'm going to say work every single day, hmm. but it's going to be with my... 10 different things I consider work. Yeah, yeah, that's a difficult one. Uh, I had some great times in different levels of schooling, starting off homeschooling for the first many years uh, of my life. And then, like I said, in graduate school is a great time. had a lot of great friends that I've got really close with during the four years that we were doing that. Um, But I also really enjoy and love what I do. I enjoy helping people and getting people over um, you know, their physical ailments. So I would probably go with work every day and do that type of thing until I die. <laughs> you, you really brought that point home. <laughs> that was part of the question. It right? was actually, it, it was, it was actually a pretty good. Would you rather? I mean, it I've was. never seen CC that stump. He's coming on hot after last week. Uh, oh. we're, we're bringing him in. Okay. All right, Megan, we're going to flip it over to All you. Right. I think it'd be a cool place to start. And John, you can maybe hop on this because you know a lot about the story as well here. How everything started, the first trip over, here in the call, those kind of things. Sure, sure. So um, it all began when I was actually working at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital um, in Baton Rouge. And I was working in their foundation. And uh, it's really funny because somebody came in and was like, hey, we need somebody to go to Haiti. And of course, I was like, I'm not going to Haiti. Um, And they came back another time and they asked again and nobody wanted to go. And then the third time I call it being voluntold. So I was told, hey, (laughs) you need to go to Haiti. And I was the youngest one in the office. And so I went to Haiti and um, it was so difficult. It was only four months after the earthquake that happened Mm -hmm. in 2010. And I thought, I'm never going back here. Like, this is crazy. Um, and so three months later, I was told to go again. <laughs> so I went, and this time was a little bit different. Um, I was trying to set up some trips for doctors to go um, and, you know, travel to Haiti to be able to help. And uh, our car broke down, our van broke down um, on this random street in the middle of nowhere. And so people were like, hey, let's go up to see what's at the top of this mountain. And so we walk up to the top of this mountain and it's beautiful, but there's no, there's literally just one tree and it's just this beautiful green space. And me being the diva that I was back then, I was like, I'm going to stand under the shade cause I don't want to get sunburned. And so <laughs> I walk over and I go stand under the tree and I'm looking out and seeing all these kids. And it was just a really hard sight. And I remember thinking like, Oh, somebody needs to come here and, and do something. And I left there and thought like, it's not me, it's somebody else. (laughs) So I got back to the United States and oddly enough, um, started having 
dreams every single night about this tree. And I just thought it was so weird. I'm like, why am I having dreams about a tree of all things? And so this went on for months and months. And then finally, after about three months, I realized that God was calling me to go back to Haiti, to go back to this tree for some reason. And so I kind of got to the point um, after literally dreaming about this every night that I had a choice to ignore what God was trying to tell me or to, you know, go for it. And so I decided back then, Hey, I'm going to go back to Haiti and go see what's going on. And so I went, Wow. yeah, now this was like a, I'm going to sell everything I own and pack up and move over there kind of trip. Correct. Yeah. It was kind of like just weird, not, I say weird timing, but honestly, you know, it's divine. It's nothing's really odd. It's always in God's plan. Right. But, um, I just thought it was really interesting. My roommate in, in Baton Rouge was actually getting married. And so she was, you know, moving out and I didn't want to have to go get another apartment. And so we ended up doing this like, you know, garage sale type thing. And people, I just remember people like rifling through my stuff and me being like, Oh my God, no, don't take those shoes. Like it was so, (laughs) it was so traumatic for me. Um, and so, yeah, I sold everything and then, you know, said, okay, I'm going to go to Haiti. And you know, people thought I was crazy and it probably was, it's still, I still think it is. So that's how it started. Uh, Yeah. That's something I thought was really interesting that it was a big leap of faith. It wasn't that you were going there to meet, um, another missionary group or anything else like that. This was Boudreaux moves to Haiti by herself at 24 years old. Yeah, yeah. And like, what do you do? I mean, it's just like you you land. It's like, all right, I'm looking for some apartment buildings, please. Like, you know, how does, obviously there's none, but. Yeah, really. (laughs) Like you just show up with your backpack and that's it? I mean, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Like I showed up and I knew the name of a driver and he came and picked me up and brought me to Gracier, like the city that I was in when I, you know, had the dreams or, or saw the tree. And I remember he like dropped me off and like discreetly, discreetly like handed me his business card and was like, call me if you need me with these like wild eyes. Like, why is this white girl getting dropped off in the middle of nowhere? And I just remember being like, I had such a peace about it. But at the same time, I was like, this is so weird. Like, what am I doing? And so it it wasn't. Yeah, I, I don't suggest anybody else did do what I did. Did you have any idea where you were going to stay? <laughs> I mean, I did have a house okay. that I was staying in that we knew of like ahead of time. And, and the bizarre part was it was like, you know, Haiti, it was right after the earthquake. Keep in mind, so people were afraid to be inside. So oh, I was yeah. staying mm. inside the house and the family was staying in the front yard in a tent because they felt safer. And then their older son was staying on the roof in a tent. And so I was the only one in this house. So it was bizarre, but I really, even though I didn't speak the language or even know them, I didn't feel like as alone because, you know, I like wave every once in a while to somebody. But um, it was not like, oh, here's your apartment building and your keys and I'm your landlord. Like it was just here's where you're going to stay. And that was kind of it. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty (laughs) wild. Uh, You know, reading the book, uh, at a young age, you had a pretty uh, moving experience uh, with the presence of the Lord. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Are you referring to specifically like when my dad passed away? Is that Okay. Yeah. I know. Truth. I don't remember everything in the book, but that is something that I remember. Um, Yeah. When I was seven, my dad passed away um, and I remember um, specifically just like being in the funeral home and not really knowing what was going on, knowing he was gone. But I remember just kind of like praying that you know things would get better and I just remember like physically being like held and it was one of those weird things that like I didn't ever share with anybody until I was older because you know when you're like seven or eight and you say that to your parents they'd probably be like okay cool you know or maybe like oh that was weird um but as I got older I really realized that the Lord has has just been had a hand on my life from the very beginning and I've it's been tangible it's been something I've been able to feel so yeah I think it's something that's came across pretty um, pretty prominently in the book. So it's some re- really interesting stories in there. So you get, you're down there. Was your plan to go down there, did you have like an agenda, an idea, or you're like, I want to go back and visit the tree, see what's going on here? Well, um, yes. When I first went down there, like I said, I don't suggest people to do what I did because I, when I first went down there, I had the total like, you know, savior mentality of like, oh, I need to do all these things. And I realized really quickly, like, no, that's not how this works. Like, I'm not going to go and sweep in and save people. And so, um, you know, I got there and realized like, this is crazy. I don't know the language. I don't know the people. And so I literally, you know, I think I talk about this in the book. I eat cliff bars and like cry for three days straight. Cause I'm like, uh-huh. what am I doing? I'm such an mm-hmm. idiot. Why did I do this? And, um, it wasn't until I literally, you know, took a moment to go, okay, God, like you have me here 
You told me to come. I'm here. What do I do next? And that's when I went back up to the mountain. Um, and kind of the, 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 I guess, domino effect of everything he had in store started. And one other question on the flip back to that. Your, I think it's my understanding about your job gave you some time off to be able to do this. Did you, were you were able to talk to them about some of that part of it as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My boss was amazing. And he was like, I remember sitting down with him being like, mm, so I think that maybe. This trip y'all really I wanted might, me to go on? Yeah. It might have done something. And I think I'm supposed to be in Haiti for a little bit. And he was just awesome. He was a believer and he loved the Lord. And he was like, go for it. Try it out. Like worst thing that can happen is you come back and here's your job, you know? And, wow. and you know, I kind of was hoping for some pushback that maybe it would give me like an excuse. And of course it was like doors open, go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, Oh great. Now I really have to do this. So whenever you, so you're there, you had your cliff bars and you're kind of upset trying to figure it out and you decide to go to, to the mountain. Like when you originally were going to go there, what was your plan? Like, were you going to kind of pick up where you left off on your previous trips? Were you thinking, I have a mission, a goal? Did you know at that time or did it evolve or how, what happened? Embarrassingly enough? No. Like, I don't think I ever even That's thought awesome. about That's that. Awesome. Like, I mean, and yeah, looking back, it's awesome. But like in the like moment, I'm like, no wonder my mom was like, don't go, <laughs> don't leave me. Cause people are like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? And, um, it, it really is one of those things. Like it's a testament to like when you're moving forward and you're like listening to what the Lord wants you to do, you have like these like blinders on and, and not to say you don't hear from other people or you don't like listen to other people, but you really do, um, just like walk in that confidence of being obedient. And that's kind of what I was doing. Cause I got there and I really was like, all right, Lord, what's next? You know, and I've, I've never really done that in my life. So it's kind of bizarre that like, you know, that was the moment where I felt like I had to do it so strongly, but that's exactly how it started. Another interesting story in the book that uh, got my attention was um, you waking up one day and being able to speak the language. John Dunn stole my question. That's the one question I wanted to ask. That's oh, phenomenal. You ask it. You ask it. I'll pretend like I Thank you. Here. I knew I had a ride or die in here with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Go ahead, John. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it. that in and of itself is, in fact, it was it was one of those things that I almost didn't put in the book because I knew people were going to be like, what intarnation? Um, and I was really nervous to like tell people about yeah. it. But basically, um, I had been in Haiti for about six weeks and I was flying back. Um, and I remember thinking like, you know, if I can't speak the language, how am I going to do this? Because they speak Haitian Creole. It's a mix of Afrikaans and French. And even though people are like, oh, Louisiana, some French, some Creole, you should understand. And like the few words like that I would try and say, they'd look at me like I was like, you know, had three heads and they're like, what are you trying to say? So it was obvious there was no like language overlap between Louisiana and Haiti. Um, and you know, I would get really nervous. I was, have always been bad with languages, you know, in high school and college, I took like Spanish here and a French here and like Latin I don't know like one semester of each to get my credits because I was just so bad and I just got on the plane and I prayed like Lord if you want me to be here then I need to be able to speak the language and this was on the plane flying to the states so I went back to the states for a few weeks and you know saw my family kind of did a few things and when I got back to Haiti two weeks later um, I went back up to the mountain which is what I would always do and I got up there and uh, Mika the little girl that, um, I, you know, I talk about in the book, she started speaking and I could understand everything she was saying. And I was like, okay, this is bizarre. And I had this like moment of like, you know, deja vu or something like what is happening. And I just remember like asking her to repeat herself and she said it again. And you know, she's a kid. She was like five, six. So she didn't think anything was different. And I remember I ran down to the church where, you know, we had been working. Um, and, I started speaking Creole and they looked at me and they said like, Oh my gosh, did you go study Creole for two <laughs> weeks? And I was like, no. And I'm sitting here like almost having a panic attack. Like I'm just like sweating and they immediately stop and they're just like, Oh, merci Jésus, hallelujah. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. And everybody was like running around. I'm like, this is bizarre. And from that moment forward, I could speak, read and write Creole. And it's bizarre. It's just one of those amazing God miracles. <laughs> what an amazing That's gift. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay, spinning, spinning <laughs> back fours. I'm trying to get us to, there's also some pretty cool stories with like how you met your husband involved in all this stuff. Like it is crazy. Yes. So you, so you would go down there, I guess at the first trip down when you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to stop my job for a minute, see what's going on. Let me, let me see. 
you're you're dabbling in water and you're like okay i'm gonna get a little deeper in the water here so you go home and visit some and go back is that what was going on yeah here well for the first few months like this was all started in 2011 so by like march of 2011 i had like been using all of my money <laughs> that i'd saved and i was like oh this is not sustainable or realistic <laughs> and so i was like i probably should go fundraise you know and i okay. had no idea like i'd never fundraised really like for something like this so i didn't even know how to start but i knew i was gonna run out of money if i didn't go and start doing that so had to go and share about it. So is that when you started the organization? No, I started it before I left. Like I started it. I mean, it's so bizarre. Like it doesn't make sense. It's not like this like perfect linear thing. That's like, oh, you do this and do that. Like I was like, oh, in my 24 year old mind, when you go to a you know, foreign country, you need a nonprofit. Like, oh, you need to start a nonprofit. Like, how do you do that? Google. How do you start a nonprofit? <laughs> Literally Googled it. I mean, that's super millennial, I know. Um, but anyway, I Googled it and was like, okay, oh, I need a name. Like, what do I remember from this mountain? And I remember like going, okay, in Port-au-Prince, like the capital where you fly into, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's just like so dirty and dingy and there's so much concrete and cement. And then you go about 20 miles outside of it and you get to this beautiful like mountains, greenery, like just trees and fruit trees and everything. And I just remember, you know, being on that mountain and being able to breathe. And so I literally, once again, Googled, like, how do you say breathe in Creole? And it's respire. And so that's actually how I named the organization was just from that, like one memory of, you know, being able to breathe on and, you know, see what God okay. was going to do. So we kicked this thing off back in 2011. Mm-hmm on our, our initial journey. So you start running low on the funds and you're like, okay, we need to start fundraising for our organization here. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, there, the, the first time where it really like hit me was actually, um, when my mom was with me and we were at this like fundraising event, um, that, you know, I got invited to speak at this church and there was three organizations and we each had 10 minutes. And so I am like speaking and I've got my like, you know, iPhone probably what five back then, like <laughs> my grainy pictures on the screen kind of talking about, Hey, this is what we do. We have a school, we have a, you know, a feeding program, this kind of stuff. And then we're supposed to go back and like stand behind our table and like, you know, answer questions and stuff. And so I speak and then I go stand behind this table and I about died because, you know, the other two have these beautiful tables tablecloths and all these business cards and I go stand behind this like empty table and I'm like it's me <laughs> I'm here and so my mom was standing with me and we started um kind of like answering questions and then somebody handed a check to us and being you know the goobers that we are my mom like took it and was like oh my god and put it in her purse and I'm like mom that's like sketchy <laughs> so she starts like you way know, to go, mom. yeah I know <laughs> way to go mom but she puts all these checks in like her purse and by the end of um, the start, or by the end of the time after church, you know, somebody came up and was like, Hey, are you going to count the money? And I'm like, Oh yeah, we should. And it was almost $45,000. Wow. And I was like, wow. okay. And that was a moment for my mom that was like, okay, this is meant to be. And it was a moment for me where I was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And the so doors just keep opening. it was just, yeah, it was one thing after another. And there's so many stories of that where it's like God just provided without me even knowing or asking. And, you know, it was amazing to see that. And it was amazing for my mom to witness that because you know here she is a few months earlier going you're crazy why are you doing this and then she you know tears streaming going I, I know that this is what God wants you to be doing mm. yeah it's a pretty amazing story um, one of the other things that really hit home for me and, and I'd like to elaborate if you don't mind is the extreme poverty that was going on uh, that you walked into and uh, the initial interaction that you had with your now daughter that you adopted uh, whenever she was throwing rocks at birds. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, and this was, I mean, this was the very beginning of me uh, going up to the mountain when I first moved to Gracier. I was just so anxious. It was after my days of crying going, what am I supposed to be doing? And, you know, I walked up to the mountain and I was sitting under the tree and I saw this little girl that had rocks in her hand and she was throwing rocks at a bird um, trying to kill it. And so basically... Um, from that moment on, I realized like, okay, not only is there just an extreme poverty, but there's just a lot of kids that, you know, need food, need nutrition, and they need to have somebody that's, you know, providing for them. And, you know, I think that was kind of one of the things that I, in the early days, I kind of always assumed like, oh, I'm the one that's supposed to be providing. I'm supposed to be doing all of this. And, um, you know, fast forward to where we are now, not to jump too far ahead, but, you know, I've been here in the States for a year because of COVID and our entire organization is Haitian run and it's our Haitian 
staff that's incredible that's providing for these kids. So it's amazing to see kind of how that's, you know, morphed and how, um, you know, God just kind of created this huge thing out of just one little girl. I always tell her, you know, cause now she's my daughter. I adopted her. I always tell her it's all your fault. Like all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like something spoken by a true parent. <laughs> so, um, kind of keeping a look on the chronological side of things. So, we're going back. We're doing some of these fundraisers mm-hmm. event. The first one, y'all are kicking it off. We're riding high. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding, it wasn't as easy on some of this. And maybe you're, correct me if I'm wrong, Colorado or somewhere. Yes. And the flight gets delayed. Oh, or, gosh, yeah. I want to hear that that's story. That's a good story because it's Great one of story. those, like, more... Um, I don't know. You can just tell that, that God knew what he was doing. And I was just clueless because I, uh, was in Colorado and I was there for a fundraiser and it was at somebody's house. So it was a really like low key kind of thing. And as I'm, uh, you know, speaking, I'm thinking, Oh, we're going to get all this money. Like, you know, just, this is going to be great. It was really one of the first fundraisers that I'd ever had. And, um, ended up leaving there that night with like a thousand bucks. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. We're never going to do this. And, um, so the next morning, I'm on my way to the airport and flying out. Um, my future husband was driving the car, which I, you know, didn't know he was going to be my husband at that point. And so I'm kind of like, you know, my face is like pressed up against the glass and I'm like so embarrassed to like show him I'm like crying. So I've got these like tears streaming down my face going, this is terrible. Like going back to Haiti, we're not going to be able to afford what we need to do. And, um, he gets a phone call and it's from one of the people who was at the event the night before, and they wanted to have lunch or, or dinner that night, I think. And um, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't, you know, bring her to the airport right now. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm going like, oh, my gosh, okay, like, n- nothing's working out. You know, my super, like, negative, like, true mindset of going, this is not, you know, this is not what it's supposed to be like. And so um, I kind of had that, like, moment of, like, self-pity, and then I kind of just realized, like, just a second of, of that, and, and then I went, you know, God, if this is what you want me to do then I need to let it happen the way you want it to happen and so it was one of those things again where it's just like I had that thought I lifted that prayer up and then you know my phone rang and I was like who's calling me so I look and it was American Airlines and my flight was canceled um rescheduled for the next day and this is Denver to Dallas so if those of you know I mean that's like there's a zillion flights mainstream flight Mm -hmm. and I'm like "Mm, it's a beautiful sky outside like what's going on so it's canceled um and so I look and I'm like okay like maybe we should go to dinner so he calls him back and um sets up dinner for that night and we go to dinner with this couple I have no idea who they are he throws out something and he's like yeah you know they they work with Otterbox and I'm like who's Otterbox okay (laughs) don't even google it should have don't even think about it And I'm sitting here like talking about it. And the wife was at the event the night before. So the husband's like, hey, fill me in on what you do. So I'm talking about the school and everything. And then he says something um, that like, you know, now I'm like, oh my goodness. Because he goes, if you could boldly ask for any amount of money, how much would you ask for? And, you know, back then I was so hesitant. Now I'm like, $10 million. Like, (laughs) why didn't I say that? So I didn't say that. But um, I named an amount and he literally pulled out his checkbook and was like, I'm going to write you a check for half because I want you to keep sharing your story. And so, you know, he gave me this like check and I was freaking out. I mean, I remember I literally like stuck in my Bible and like, you know, people probably thought I was crazy. I was like holding my Bible to my chest, flying back, you know, (laughs) thinking, oh my God. And so, um, it, it was kind of just the craziest thing that like happened. And you know, it's not like you ever, you know, people, people try so hard to like get face to face with big donors or big people like that. And for me, I was so clueless. I was like, so what do you do again? (laughs) You know? Well, there was another interesting thing that happened at that dinner, I believe, correct? Oh, yeah. Did your, hus- your future <laughs> husband get a little time off? Oh, it's my it's my husband's favorite part. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they... Um, and so what's your husband's name? Let's Josh. Give him a, his name is go. Josh. Okay. <laughs> Let's give him a name. Give him a shout out here for Josh. <laughs> hey, babe. Sorry. Um, so, yeah. So, so as we're, like, sitting there, they, like, totally turned their attention to him. And they were like, so, Josh, we can see there's something going on between you two. Um, we would like for you to go to Haiti and we're going to pay you while you go. And he was like, what? And my family, I mean, I turned like white as a ghost. And I remember him saying like, I didn't plan this. This wasn't this. I didn't mean to do this. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. What's happening? So he, yeah, basically was told to come to Haiti for a month and figure out if this was the life he wanted to live. Wow. And lo and behold. (laughs) And then he never left. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Living the good life. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, 
the continuing on in the story so we make our way we're making our trips fundraising and you have adopted is it three kids um at this point i had two two kids before okay, i was so married had i had two the kids. two girls okay mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that journey i know you've spoken about yeah. i'm guessing the eldest or maybe she's not the eldest. yeah she's she is the eldest girl um and so she uh her name's mika and she was the one who um was holding the rocks and throwing the rocks at the bird and um you know long story short i really had an incredible attachment with her i just kind of started you know befriending her and and helping her um do her chores and stuff or what i thought was chores and i started kind of seeing her every day and there was a few things that were super confusing like uh she wasn't in school and you know i thought that was super strange uh it turns out about 50 percent of kids in haiti are not in school mm. so um it's a huge percentage um but i started kind of following her around and one morning i remember going up to where she lived and saw that she was surrounded by all of these dishes like tons and tons of dishes and i was like what is going on and so i got home and looked up on my phone i had literally put in there like haiti and slave because she looked like a slave and this word restavec popped up and um it's a french word it means to stay with reste means to stay avec means with and it's basically child slaves or domestic servants in haiti and there's like half a million of them and i remember thinking like this is crazy and this is what's happening. And so um, I started learning more about it. I started trying to understand like the culture of it and what's going on um, and trying to, you know, put her in school and figure out some of these things that were like these barriers that she um, just had that were just so unfair. And uh, basically in this you know, through this journey, we really developed a a really close relationship. And then, um, one evening about 10 o'clock, it was pouring raining. And I remember hearing this little like knock, knock on the gate, um, outside my house. And I was like, who's at my gate and, uh, opened the door and it was Mika. And she basically said, Hey, they said they don't want me anymore. You can have me. And I remember, I mean, my heart just dropped and I remember thinking, okay, I was 24 years old. I'm like, I have no idea what to do. But I just remember thinking like, how do you say no to this when God is literally putting this right in front of you? So I told her, you know, to come in. And so shortly after that, I, you know, I tried to see if she had any like living parents, where her birth family was, all of those things. And um, just found out a lot of really hard information that, you know, her parents weren't alive and just um, ended up uh, going through the process of starting to adopt her. Wow. And how is that process? Uh, I'm assuming that's got to be something else. Well, we're on year 10 and still, (laughs) they're still not citizens yet. It is hard. It's hard from Haiti. International adoption is difficult, but in Haiti, it is extremely difficult. It's a long, long journey. Incredible. And then lo and behold, is it her sister? Yes. Yes. So um, after about, I guess she was with me. Mika had been living with me for a few months, uh, maybe only like two months. And there was this um, orphanage that we would frequent and just um, go and play with the kids and, and make sure they were doing okay. And one night she got home and she kind of scooted over in her bed and she's like, look, mom, there's room for one more. And I remember looking at her going, mm, no, <laughs> like, no, one's enough. Um, but something that she said kind of like triggered my mind. And so I went back and, and grabbed the paperwork um, from her and there was this like torn up piece of loose leaf paper that had all this French writing and I don't speak or read French and so of course I'm sitting here trying to like look through it and it I found this like piece that said that her mother had died in the presence of two kids mm. and I was like oh my gosh she has a sister or a brother we didn't know and so the next day I like you know spoke with her and I was like do you have a sister or a brother and she was like yeah I think so and I was like okay what's her name and so I started making all these phone calls to try and track her down and figure out where she might be and um within a few months um Mika and I were out and about and I get a phone call that's like Megan you need to come home right now um there's this girl on the porch like just like Mika and I'm thinking oh my goodness what's going on so we rush home and this tiny little three-year-old's on the porch and as soon as we open the gate like Mika just remembered her name and just starts yelling Jessica and Jessica yells Mika and they just like hugged and I'm like oh my goodness I mean it was totally a movie moment and I keep I I mean I have it it's one of those things you have in your mind that you just wish you would have recorded and could share with people because it was so powerful to see just that reconnection and how like God just was going to bring them back together. It's amazing. That is truly incredible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You cannot make that up for sure. No. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of go back to you met your husband and then you had the girls before. Yes. So then how did things evolve from there as far as y'all's relationship and Haiti and what 
y'all's life in Haiti. How did that all progress? <laughs> well, it's funny. I always joke with him because, you know, we have different ideas of when we started dating because in my mind, I'm like, okay, I live in Haiti and I have two kids. And he was like, yes, I know. I get it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm living in Haiti with two kids. And he was really already like committed to that. And I kept being like, okay, who wants to, you know, come and date somebody who's got two kids and lives in the middle of nowhere, Haiti. And so, um, basically, <laughs> basically, you know, as soon as our relationship began, you know, we already, I had two children, two little girls. They were, you know, three and six at the time. And, um, he was just, you know, this kind of almost joined me on the journey. It was just on the same route and just really realized that like God wanted him to be there. And so, um, we, about, I don't know, I guess three or four months after we had met, he basically moved to Haiti and then, like I said, never left. Wow. So a matter of months later, he was in. Yeah, he was in. He was all in. Shout out to Josh here. I mean, yeah. Is it Josh Joshua? <laughs> yeah, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a big thing for me in the book. How you, you know, you talked about whenever you made that decision, when Mika showed up that night, you were like, okay, I may be here permanently. I may never go back. Yeah. So that was yeah. a big life changing deal for you. So mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at 24, amazing. you can't adopt in Haiti. You know, you have to, you're supposed to be like 35. And so, um, I just remember thinking like, okay, Lord, if you're going to put me in this situation, like and I'm gonna make this commitment I'm gonna make it wholeheartedly and so um yeah when Josh came down I was like okay I'm going to be here forever like I don't know if the girls will ever get to travel and get their paperwork so I'm telling you this you know on the front end and you know it didn't scare him which is weird now but (laughs) it didn't scare him (laughs) incredible so tell us a little bit about the organization what y'all do the mission purpose things like that Sure, sure. So um, Respirate Haiti's mission is to encourage, educate, and empower um, Restivex orphans and vulnerable children. And so I kind of went over what Restivex are already, but um, there's a large number of Restivex in our area because there's a lot of kids who don't go to school. And so um, the very first thing that we started was a feeding program, and it still to this day happens every Saturday. And we feed hundreds of kids. Anybody who's hungry, they can come up. And it's um, just this completely Haitian-led thing where they serve food, they sing songs that's just a chance for kids to be kids um and then kind of the development of how the organization even evolved was um when we started having those those feeding programs we realized there were a lot of kids not in school and so back in 2011 started a school with only 75 kids and now we're up to over 500 and so we have kindergarten through ninth grade um and two special needs classes as well um yeah and then from the school we kind of you know it, it i keep talking about this domino effect because it really is it's not like I got over there and had this huge like vision of this is what I want to do it was like we were meeting the need right in front of us and so we did the feeding program we did the you know school and then we started a medical clinic and so we actually have a 9,000 square foot medical clinic where we do mental health we do physical and occupational therapy and we do um, any medical needs Um, and then my husband is a really big sports guy and so he started um, soccer teams and tennis teams so we've got a girls and boys uh, soccer team um, and we have women that we actually have a girl that's um, about to play on the UL team, the team in Lafayette. So wow. she's about to play college awesome. soccer. Um, and we've got seven girls that have played on the Haitian national team. They've traveled all around. Um, and so that's been a really you know neat thing to see. And then um, our tennis, we have some of the top U10, U14, U12 tennis players in the country of Haiti. So it's really just one thing after another, like I said, and just kept evolving. And how did y'all know how to structurally get this thing going? I mean, you got a lot of people working within the organization, it seems. I mean, this is pretty, from the medical to the sports to the education, this is a, a wide range. It started yeah. literally with the girl <laughs> who was 24. and Yeah, who's a poli-sci major at that. So, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, really, honestly, a lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is God providing the right people at the right time. I mean, we had a really incredible um, lady come from Colorado, actually, Rita Noel, who came and helped us get our school started and kind of, you know, knew what to do and trained our our administration and you know we've had people that have come down for for long periods of time in the medical clinic and a lot of people um have recognized that our ultimate goal is to have this be Haitian run you know it's not something where it's like oh hey let's get all these like white people to come in and do this Mm -hmm. they've recognized hey this is something that like the community needs to do and so um you know with COVID and everything us not you know kind of getting stuck here the airport in Haiti was closed um it really was an opportunity for our staff to step up our Haitian staff to be in leadership roles and and they've done a great job so it's 135 of them are 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 keeping it rolling and doing an incredible job wow 
Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, I want to go back to some of the things that uh, I, I read in the book about, you know, you get over there, you start going to visiting orphanage, doing different things like that, and just running into uh, a lot of the corruption that was going on, a lot of the uh, people resources that were coming in, hoping to do good things uh, that were just being taken advantage of. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Because that was a couple of Several very wild stories just came from that. (laughs) Yeah. I always like joke. I'm like, that's the like lifetime movie, like portion of the book that I'm like, I can't believe I really did this. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we actually frequented this orphanage that was a couple of, um, miles away from Gracie and I continued to go because it looked like everything was just so, you know, the poverty, like it was so extreme. The kids weren't eating, they didn't have clothes, all of these things. Um, and I started to go just with me and one of my like staff members and we would just go and kind of spend some time. And, uh, what started happening was really bizarre. There would be these American churches that would come in and they'd spend a week there and I'd kind of get to know them and be like, okay, this is interesting. And I'd see them bring in loads of, you know, flip flops and food and blankets and all sorts of stuff, toys and everything. And so the first time it happened, I was like, this is amazing amazing like how did you guys find this place and I remember a couple of them saying like oh we've been here before it's just like you know this is just a really hard place and I was like hmm okay and so you know I'd come back the next week and then see the toys were gone or the shoes or something was gone and so I did this for a few months and as it continued to happen I realized there was a pattern that you know these American teams would come in dump all this money food resources into this orphanage and then when they would leave um, the very next day it all be gone And so I kind of started writing these things down and trying to figure it out. And long story short, it was basically, you know, orphanages in Haiti in general are businesses. And, um, you know, I say that because one, you actually have to have a business license for an orphanage. And two, 70% of the kids that live in orphanages in Haiti, and sometimes people say as even high as 80%, um, these kids have parents. They actually have living parents. um, And their parents are either tricked into bringing them into orphanages or these kids are stolen from their parents. And so uh, that's kind of what was happening. And it took me months of like, you know, research. I think I've always kind of like wanted to be in the FBI. And so this is like my little like (laughs) FBI, you know, thing that I did. (laughs) But um, just, you know, a lot of research and a lot of seeing that like these kids actually, they had families and they actually had people that cared about them, but they were just, you know, in this orphanage and trapped. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting how, you know, you rounded up all the resources and people and, uh, you know, sounded the alarm of what was going on there. But then to even a more uh, bigger extent, you were involved in this thing operation that um, <laughs> got the director uh, removed. Yeah, um, that's something my mom didn't know about until the book came out. And she was like, Megan, like she called me and she was like, I can't believe you never told me this. And I'm like, yeah, shouldn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically it was very, very scary because I started having all these files um, on the kids and I was realizing that some of them were just like not there any longer. And I'd ask what would happen and, you know, they wouldn't come or, you know, none of the stories were straight and it was very confusing um and then one day uh we actually had a team in from california or uh, not me but the orphanage had a team visiting them and the the team wanted to bring the kids to um the mountains to gracier because it was you know like i said it was just so refreshing and all that so all the kids loaded up on the bus and i just had this like pull to like go back in and like make sure everybody was out and I went back in the orphanage and I saw this little child laying on the ground almost under a bed with like a pink shirt on. And so, of course, I assumed it was a girl. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I kind of like, you know, didn't know what to do. I looked around. There was nobody. So I pulled this child out and realized um, it was actually a boy. <laughs> and I was like, what is happening? Like, why was he left? And so um, he had a really like high fever and long story short, was extremely sick. And so I um, took him with us to to uh on the outing because nobody was staying and gave him some medicine and then asked the orphanage director i was like look he's really sick like this is not normal can i keep him at my um my house so i can help him you know become well like you know i knew this orphanage had over 100 kids there was no way that they were going to be able to do it and so in hindsight i'm like oh gosh that was like really dangerous even from the get-go but um looking back like that was something that you know led to what you're talking about this exact sting operation and so basically this child stayed with stayed with me for a few weeks um nursed him back to health and he became this like vibrant little boy um and as i was uh you know about to return him to the orphanage but i was 
actually going to ask more questions like where's his family what's going on before I could even get those words out of my mouth the director of the orphanage asked me if I wanted to buy the child and that was when I you know it was literally like a movie moment when I'm like oh my gosh this doesn't really happen does it Mm -hmm. and it just blew my mind because I'm like no this guy is actually trying to sell me this child and so I you know didn't have the words to like give him an answer and and it kind of worked out because if I would have been like no oh my goodness then I wouldn't have been able to do what I did so I just kind of looked at him and I was like um I'm not sure um and then literally once again God just set up all these people I mean I started working with um the UN the NYPD actually had a branch in Haiti and I started working with them and started working with all these authorities because I was like okay this is the answer this is where the kids are going something's not right and so um they kind of created this whole operation this sting operation which you know I look back now and I'm like who in their right mind would have done that like what are you thinking and you know, at the same time, like it was actually the first ever um, Haitian-run orphanage that was closed in Haiti. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah, it was a pretty wild story. Um, <laughs> reading it, and y'all were supposed to go through a certain checkpoint, and then the guy turns around and's like, ah, we're going to go a different direction. <laughs> I was like, I'm no, dead. I, I'm going to die. I'm scared for you. <laughs> I remember, yeah, in that moment, I'm like, okay, you know, we're going to go down this one road. And I mean, there's literally one road, like Haiti's shaped like a C and there's one road from like the beginning to the end. And so I'm like, we're going to go down this one road. And then literally, you know, we're 20 feet in front of the checkpoint and he turns down a different road. And I was like, I'm dead. We're out. It's over. Like, oh my goodness, this is what my mom was talking about. Like, <laughs> stay safe. Um, but then, you know, it, we kind of came back on course and then, and then, you know, everything was okay. But it was, yeah, it was crazy. One of those heart pounding moments for sure. You know, Megan, hearing you talk, it's like I'm sitting here reflecting. I think in our lives, you know, you go to school. It's like, what job am I going to have? Am I going to have a family? It's all these goals and ambitions that we're trying to accomplish. But, you know, it seems like deep down, you you know, I see a lot of stories of faith. Like you didn't have the answers. You just your heart knew that maybe it didn't know. But God told you just do this. And, you know, I was just thinking, like, if you had any insider inspirational comments that would help people sort of discern God's will in their life versus their will. And like, what are some things they can do to just open their hearts and minds to maybe what he wants, even if you don't have all the answers and just because you have so many examples of just, he answered with what to do, provided the resources, provided all that. And you've seen so many examples of just faith. I'm sure there's a million other stories. Mm-hmm. You know, any thoughts on that and just yeah. being open to his his word and will? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, we always share all the good parts, right? You know, we could probably have 10 more podcasts on all the crazy failures and hard parts too. But, um, you know, I guess the thing is, is just to recognize that like, you know, your path that's laid out, like this is something that God has orchestrated from the very beginning, even from the very first story we shared about like fe- feeling like, you know, I was being held when I was seven. I mean, that is the Lord's impact on my life. And, you know, I think I can remember so many times in my life where I'm like, this is terrible. Why am I even doing this? My first job out of college, I did um, construction, marketing for a construction company. And I remember clocking in every day at eight and clocking out at five being like, I am wasting my life. What am I doing? You know, and I did that for eight months and then fast forward a few years later and I've built you know 18 buildings in Haiti and know everything about rebar and people look at me like I'm crazy and they're like how do you know all this stuff and I'm like well once upon a time in my life for eight months I hated my life and that's how I learned it and so you know I think you're right like there's things that God puts in our life that we think are like terrible or we think that like why would this happen to me and what we're not recognizing is that even like you know the ashes that we see in front of us, God's going to make something beautiful. And there are so many times in my life where I'm like, this is terrible. Like, why is this happening? Um, but it, it is just part of his plan. It's part of what he has. Yeah. Good. All right, Megan, we're on our way to the home stretch here. We like to ask every one of our guests who or what do they think is driving their car? That's proverbial for what drives your life, so to speak. It could be God, free will, pandemic, job, spouse. There's no right or wrong answer. We've heard things such as like sense of urgency, some really out of the box stuff. What comes to your mind when we ask the question? Oh, well, I think the easy answer would be like God, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think uh, the more deep answer, I guess, would be um, obedience, just being obedient. You know, I think it's super easy, um, for us to hear like what the world is telling us to do and all the like loud yelling of that. And I, for one, feel like, 
you know, the words of obedience are in, you know, God's quiet whispers to us. And I think that it's way harder to settle yourself, to take a minute and just recognize that there's a difference between what the world wants you to do and what God wants you to do. And um, I think once again, it's taken me a long time and I don't always get it right, but you know, that is really why I do what I do. Yeah. I was going to ask, is that a learned skill? basically that you've learned over time or how to harness it? Um, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's like a learn skill by force. Like I'm mm. in the middle of nowhere. I don't speak the language and I have no one to talk to. So I have to like sit with myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm a really talkative person. I could talk to anybody. So, um, yeah, there's definitely times where God's put me in a situation like that, where I have to just sit here and go, okay, Lord, what do you have for me? Mm. Um, but then now, you know, especially having five kids and having a husband and having this ministry and all this stuff, I have to be intentional about like sitting in the quiet so I can you know continuously be obedient in what he has that is awesome and one last question for you <laughs> that's so awesome Megan thank you so where can we find your book where can we learn about your ministry where can we access your resources and if people want to contribute donate or tap into what you're doing for sure um so my book miracle on voodoo mountain is on amazon or uh, barnes and noble pretty much anywhere uh, books are sold you can find it um and uh for those of you who want to learn more about respiratory haiti or follow us on social media you can find us at respiratory haiti sounds like respire and spelled yeah. like respire <laughs> um so respire haiti on instagram facebook Awesome. awesome. Well, we are looking forward to hearing about the journey, and we thank you for coming on today with us. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right, guys. We hope that uh, there's a lot to be taken from this. Some motivation, some inspiration. Feel free to check it out. Read the book. Uh, I think it's a great book to read for sure and to continue to learn about the journey. And until next time, we'll catch y'all later. Aye. Hey, y'all. If you've been enjoying picking up what we've been laying down, subscribe and never miss an episode. Find us on social media and let us know who's driving your car this week. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Who's Driving Your Car Podcast. Perfect timing, sun is shining, nothing more I need. Yeah. If you feel Best life, won't you sing with me?